You'll be excited to hear that this evening we are back in the book of Amos. And so if you have a Bible with you, please uh, turn to Amos chapter 3. We're going to uh, launch into this chapter this evening. And we're only going to cover the first two verses. But uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I have to warn you that there is a rather picturesque simile towards the end. (laughs) And you'll know when we get to it, it's pretty gross. And I'll forgive you if it makes you giggle a little bit, at least I'll know you're paying attention. (laughs) I uh, actually texted uh, this verse to a couple of my pastor friends. I was thinking of making it my new life verse. (laughs) That's a joke. Amos chapter 3, going to begin reading at verse 1, please. Follow along. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumult in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, So shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed, and in Damascus in a couch. That's pretty gross. (laughs) Hear ye, and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts. That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we're able to gather this evening. I pray now that you would help us to understand the text of Scripture that is before us. I help us to concentrate. I pray that you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been embarrassed because you uh, misunderstood something. Uh, You thought you were supposed to do a certain thing, but it turned out to be the wrong 
thing. <laughs> Maybe that's happened to you in a social setting and you wanted the earth to open up and swallow you. <laughs> Or maybe you thought you were permitted to do a certain thing, but it turned out you weren't. And when that was brought to your attention, your stomach dropped and you felt pretty stupid. Misunderstandings can be embarrassing. Uh, they can also be dangerous. Uh, you misunderstand a street sign and end up going the wrong way down a one-way street. <laughs> Uh, you misunderstand some directions and end up in the restricted area surrounded by security guards. You misunderstand the instructions on the bottle of tablets the pharmacist has given you. <laughs> and you don't take enough or you take too many. Okay? That can have very serious consequences. This is true for our Christian lives. Misunderstanding Bible doctrine can have profound consequences for our spiritual growth. Uh, it can invite trouble into our lives. It can lead to poor decisions and even to pain and suffering. A particular variety of misunderstanding is assuming things to be true that actually aren't true. And we've probably experienced the fallout from making this kind of mistake as well. We were led to believe one thing and so we naturally assumed another thing and we acted accordingly, but it turned out not to be the case and we were left with egg on our face. <laughs> oh, I thought it was okay. So-and-so gave me permission to do such and such and so I thought that he would be fine with this. It's highly likely your children <laughs> have done this kind of thing. Uh, assumed that you would be okay with them doing something when in fact you weren't. This is also, also something we can do as Christians. We can assume certain things about God and about our relationship with Him that actually aren't true. And those false assumptions can lead us into making unhealthy decisions. Or we can justify what are really unwise and even ungodly choices based on false assumptions. These can be very problematic, very dangerous. Now, I'm not sure that this is exactly what was happening in Israel when Amos proclaimed the word of the Lord, but our text this evening certainly deals with a false assumption, a misunderstanding. One that is perhaps fairly common among professing Christians, and we'll get to that at the end of the sermon. Now, chapters 3 to 6 contain God's message to Israel, the northern kingdom with its capital city of Samaria. And there is some structure to it, though it's not super obvious, and uh, I'm not going to get into the details this evening. Though one clue is the repetition of the phrase, hear this word. We have it here in chapter 3 verse 1. Again in chapter 4 verse 1 and then in chapter 5 verse 1. Hear this word. So that seems to indicate where a new part of this message begins. Now some scholars believe that the message in chapter 3 is actually for Israel and Judah. Because of the expressions children of Israel and the whole family in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. Now I don't think that interpretation is right. I, I don't think Judah is in view here as well as Israel. 
And mainly because there are no references to Judah in this chapter, while there are clear references to Israel. The mountains of Samaria are mentioned in verse 9. Those who dwell in Samaria are mentioned in verse 12. And the city of Bethel is mentioned in verse 14 and the temple complex that was there. Of course, Bethel was a city at the southern end of Israel. And when using these expressions, what the Lord was doing was connecting Israel to its history. In the words of one author, this language envelops the northern kingdom within a longer history. One that extends back to before its very founding. Now the kingdom of Israel, its people, those ten northern tribes who broke away from Judah, well, they had been part of the exodus. Their forefathers had experienced the, the mighty hand of God in delivering them from bondage. Sure, at this time, Israel was its own separate nation state with its own king and even its own religion, but it was part of that family that God had taken out of Egypt, entered into a covenant with at Mount Sinai and brought to its promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the Lord goes on in verse 2 to emphasise Israel's privileged position. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now of course this doesn't mean that the Lord wasn't aware of or didn't care about any of the other families or nations of the earth. We've just come through chapters 1 and 2 where it's clear that the Lord was concerned about other nations. In those chapters the Lord directly addressed a number of them. What this means is that the Lord knew Israel in a unique and special way. Uh, this speaks of a relationship. The Lord had a relationship with Israel that he did not have with any of the other nations. Now, the Old Testament uses this verb to know to speak of the intimacy between husbands and wives. For example... Abraham, no doubt, was acquainted with many women, but he knew his wife, Sarah. He had fellowship with her. He had a, a relationship with her that he had with no one else. And that's the idea here in Amos chapter 3. Now, there, there is an echo here of what Moses said to Israel way back in the days before it entered its promised land. Listen again to the first part of verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, listen to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning at verse 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now the one true and living God, the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he chose Israel. Out of all the nations of the earth, he chose Israel to make his own. He revealed himself to Israel. He was present with Israel like he was present with no other people. 
He made promises to Israel. He communed with Israel and blessed them greatly. If we fast forward to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul well understood this point. And he describes the privileges that were Israel's because of their special relationship with the Lord. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, Paul says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Listen to his answer. Much every way. Because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The one true and living God. The eternal, self-existent, almighty, transcendent Lord gave his word to Israel. The revelation of his person and his will. What a great privilege. But that's not all. Uh, listen to Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. He says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And then, consider this incredible catalogue of divine favour. Paul says, To whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers... And to cap it all off, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. God's Son came to Israel, through Israel, into this world. This is what was involved. This is what it means when the Lord says in our text, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. The sentiment is something like this. I have, as it were, given myself to you and no one else. I have walked with you. I have communed with you. We had this unique and special relationship. And this is perhaps why we, modern readers, might find the second part of verse 2 somewhat surprising. Now, Matthew Henry can hardly be called a modern reader, but I think he's right when he says this concerning verse 2. Now one would think it should follow. Therefore, I will spare you, will connive at your faults and excuse you. No. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He's right, isn't he? This runs contrary to how we often think. Now, when someone has chosen to love another person, when they have entered into a relationship with them, when there is a history of affinity and kindness, we assume that they will go easy on that person when they mess up. That they might even overlook or excuse their bad behaviour. But that's not the case here in our text. In fact, it's almost the exact opposite. His special relationship with Israel was the reason why the Lord was going to punish the nation for its Sins. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Israel's history with the Lord, a history that was filled with grace and mercy and great privilege, made them even more culpable for their rebellion. Listen again to Matthew Henry. He says, note, the distinguishing favours of God to us, if they do not serve to restrain us from sin, 
shall not serve to exempt us from punishment. That's very good. I'll say it again. The distinguishing favours of God to us, if they do not serve to restrain us from sin, shall not serve to exempt us from punishment. Nay, the nearer any are to God in profession, and the kinder notice he has taken of them, the more surely, the more quickly, and the more severely will he reckon with them, if they by a course of willful sin profane their character, disgrace their relation to him, violate their engagements, and put a slight upon the favours and honours with which they have been distinguished. Now we have to be careful in drawing a line between the experience of Israel in this text and our experience as Christians. Though the nation of Israel had been chosen by God, most in Israel did not know God. They were not believers. They were unregenerate. That was the problem. And furthermore, God was in a covenant with the nation of Israel that is different to the covenant that he has entered into with us. What God says to his people in our text and in this whole chapter is entirely in keeping with his covenant commitments. If his people rebelled, then this is what would befall them. Read Deuteronomy chapter 26 verses 15 to 68. That long list of curses. So we have to make sure we don't mishandle the scriptures when we connect the message in these verses to our Christian lives. But with that said, there is something here for us and it has to do with where we began this sermon. Thinking about misunderstandings and false assumptions. There is something that some Christians assume that this little text shows to be false and even dangerous. Now there are probably very few professing Christians who would say this out loud But I'm sure there are many who think this way or they think something along these lines. The assumption is this. God is really not bothered by my sin. I've trusted in Jesus. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And so now God is sort of indifferent when it comes to how I live my life. Now again, in my experience, there aren't many Christians who would actually say this, but I think there are many who have this idea in their mind, even if it's a bit fuzzy, or at least there are many Christians who live as if this is what they believe. They assume that because they've trusted in Jesus, God is either indifferent to their sin or he overlooks it. This text here in Amos chapter 3 shows us that this is a lie, that this is a false assumption. It shows that in fact God is very concerned about his people's sin, that he is very concerned about the sin of those with whom he has entered into a relationship with. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. That we are in a relationship with God because of his grace doesn't mean our sin is no longer of any consequence to him. Doesn't mean that he doesn't care about it. He does. Now let's be clear. As Christians, the, the penalty of our sin has been paid. 
Now, what we deserve for breaking God's law fell on Jesus at the cross. He absorbed the punishment that was due to us. There is nothing left for us to pay, nothing left for us to bear. On account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we are justified forever in the eyes of God. We have been given everlasting life and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Hallelujah. But that's not where the Christian life ends, with justification. There, there is more to it. There is our daily walk with God in this body, through this world. And he is still God. And our sin still displeases him. If it didn't, he wouldn't be God. Our sin displeases him in the same way that a child's disobedience displeases its parents. God is vitally interested in our obedience for our sake because that's what's best for us and he is vitally interested in our obedience for his sake because he loves righteousness, he loves holiness. And when we obey him, we magnify his grace. When we disobey him, we obscure his grace. We disfigure his grace. The Lord's concern over the sin of his new covenant people comes across very clearly in the New Testament. And especially in his letters to the seven churches in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. We see that it is not a small matter. Listen to some of his message to the church at Pergamos. If you're ever tempted to think that God doesn't care about your sin, this should cure you of that opinion fairly quickly. Again, remember, the Lord is writing to a church, to Christians. Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. But I have a few things against thee, and everyone shudders. <laughs> no one wants to hear Jesus say that. <laughs> I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The Lord was displeased with these Christians because they were committing sin. By embracing false doctrine and by participating in certain wicked practices or at least permitting them in their fellowship. And if they would not repent, he would deal with them. And brothers and sisters, the Lord will deal with us if we are not concerned about our sin. If we're indulging it rather than fighting against it. He will allow us to experience the consequences of our sin and he will bring his discipline to bear upon our lives and it will not be pleasant. And he will deal with us for our sakes because he loves us and for his own sake because he loves righteousness. So to the adults here this evening and to the boys and girls and to everyone in between, I say... Don't make this false assumption. You might well be a Christian. You might well know that you're going to heaven, but the Lord is not okay with your jealousy or your dishonesty or your bitterness or your gossip. The Lord is not okay with your dirty mouth or your greed 
or with the way you talk about others behind their back. He's not okay with you lying to your parents or being disrespectful to them. He's not okay with your porn habit. He's not okay with your bad temper. You can't just carry on with that sin, whatever it might be, as if it's no big deal and everything will be fine. It won't. Now the Lord knows that we fail. He knows that we fall and he is very gracious and very merciful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is all true and I am so glad it is. But that doesn't give us license to continue in sin. It doesn't give us permission to be unrepentant. Rather, the Lord commands his people to fight against sin, to put sin to death. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Don't indulge these sins. Don't allow yourself to enjoy them every now and again. Rather, put them to death. Say no to the world and to the flesh. For which things sake, because of these sins, Paul says, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off, put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians chapter 3 verses 5 to 10. This morning we were encouraged to persevere and we were reminded that it is the mercy of God that enables us to do that. This evening it is a warning that God has for us. And we need both. We need the encouragements and we need the warning. Don't assume that God is okay with your sin. Because he's not. By his grace, make every effort to resist temptation and live in a manner that pleases him. Amen.